Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Bloody Pit. I am Rod Barnett, and today I have returning victim, guest, guest, the word, the word is guest, uh, <laughs> Derek <laughs> Cook. Uh, how you doing, man? How's everybody doing? Uh, I'm, everybody on this end is doing as well as could be expected, which is not as good as it should be, but... Well, how are things on your end? About the same. Th- things are, you know, ups and downs and trying to celebrate the ups and ignore the downs. That is what I think we all try to do. And uh, you can manage it. I think you probably lead a better life than most people, or at least a happier one. Well, try. I try. Well, uh, before we get to uh, this this episode's uh, two William Castle Westerns, I would like to talk to you about something that I'm kind of excited about because just accidentally I got to delve into it earlier this week. Um, You have published a book. Oh, thank you for bringing that up. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, we. Uh, I, I finally pulled the trigger and decided, you know what, I'm sitting on these short stories. I got to get them out. And I, I may have mentioned at the end of the last time, I, the last episode I was on, that I was trying to get some things going. And, you know, it was just time. And I'm, I had a blast putting the book together and even proofreading it over and over and over again. I enjoyed myself and I've got a few more things in the work. So it was a awesome time. Uh, it's called Monster Hunter for Hire. It is the first uh, collection of short stories featuring a character by the name of Mark Temple. He, uh, I'm calling the series the Supernatural Solutions series, and Mark is a, well, Monster Hunter for Hire. And it's a lot of fun for me to kind of dive into that world a little bit. I hope you dig it. Well, uh, I got the chance purely by accident. I uh, I picked up the uh, ebook version of it, uh, threw it onto uh, my phone, um, guess the end of last week. And just by sheer accident, I was situated in a place at work where I, I had to wait for about half an hour for something to happen. And I, all I had with me was my phone. And so I went, well, you know, this is a timely, <laughs> this is a timely accident. So I brought it up and I read the first story in the, in the collection on the ebook. And I got to tell you, I thoroughly enjoyed it. Oh, good. I'm so glad to hear that, man. I, I really am. I, you know, you worry, and I, I don't know, you know, for other creatives or writers, but, you know, I, I deal with imposter syndrome quite a bit. <laughs> uh, and I, I worried pulling the trigger on this, but I just, the, the, uh, the eagerness to get it out there eventually overweighed the impo- you know, overtook the imposter syndrome I was dealing with. And uh, I, I'm so glad it got out there and I'm so glad people are digging it. Uh, it is a collection of, Three new short stories, two short stories that were published in previous publications that are really hard to get a hold of now. Uh, and yeah, I'm, I'm glad you enjoyed it, man. I really am. Well, I really did. I, I loved the, I loved the setup. I loved the follow through. It was it was nice. I was able to to read it and then kind of smile around at the the waiting room I was in, and then finally was able to get back to work after having the chance to accidentally read that first short story. It was great. I, I love. I say I love the setup. Uh, 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 a, a vampire hunter on a commercial air flight. Perfect. I mean, just like, as, soon, as soon as I read the setup, as soon as I read like the first few paragraphs, I went, "Oh hell, I hope I get to finish this." <laughs> yeah, that one was a fun one to write. Yeah, he uh, the vampire on the airplane, and well, I don't want to ruin it, but uh, no, no, no. my personal favorite story of the batch is is the one right in the middle, the third story. I like them all, but. Uh, the third story is my personal favorite. I think I spent the most time on it. It's also the longest of the of the five in here. And there is a second volume in the works uh, that will have at least five new stories featuring the Mark Temple character. And there is work being done on a novel featuring some characters that appear in this collection, not named Mark. So I'll put that out there, too. 
Interesting. Well, once again, uh, I'm, I'm always impressed when I talk to people, uh, most recently you and, uh, Robert Monell who, you know, write fiction as well oh, as yeah. nonfiction. And I'm just kind of stunned. I, I, I know that I don't have whatever bone in my head it takes to actually create fiction that I would feel comfortable submitting to other people's gazes. Uh, I'm more than willing to, you know, to write movie reviews and opinion pieces and, and, you know, little bits of, of history or things of that nature on film or, or comics or whatever. But man, I just can't even, I can't even imagine. I mean, I can, I can, I can weave a, a, a tale of true BS verbally, but I just don't know that I have the confidence to put it down on paper. So I'm always <laughs> impressed. <laughs> well, you know, I've been, I've been writing for years. Uh, I go back as far as grade school and, remember writing uh, little scripts to maybe make a movie of stop motion style with my G.I. Joe action figures. So, you know, I've been writing and creating, creating stories for years. And while I did fun, kind of fall away from it for a little while, it's been a lot of fun to get back into it. And with this coming out, I feel like it's kind of opened the floodgates and I've got tons of plans for other things. I don't know when this episode's going out, but if it goes out before, I think it's April 23rd. Um, I can tell you that there's something else coming down the line uh, in association with uh, National Superhero Day. Excuse me, it's April 28th. Uh, I'm going to be making official uh, the launch of a Superhero Prose series of books I'm going to be doing. So. Oh, okay. So stay tuned for that. Interesting. Well, yeah, I, I, uh, this will be out before, you know, well before the end of April. Uh, okay. unless something ridiculous happens and considering that I'm in the middle of prepping for a move, uh, who knows what, yeah. but nevertheless, <laughs> uh, okay. yes. Well, well, that'll be coming. Uh, you know, so I guess the best way to follow up with me on that, just follow my website, my writing website, which is monsterkidwriter.com. Uh, and there are links there to the monster hunter ebook. And I just put the print edition up, uh, the other day. So it's available as a print edition as well. If you are not uh, an ebook user and you want the undead tree version of it, you can get it that way. <laughs> cool. <laughs> well, um, you've mentioned a uh, monster kid blank blank and it's monster kid radio that you are of course the main host of. And, and, right. um, just want to make sure that everybody's aware of that podcast. Not that I suspect that anybody listening to this is unaware of monster kid radio, but, over there, you spend uh, the vast majority of your time covering, strangely enough, uh, monster films. And yes, so yeah. it leaves very little time for poor Derek <laughs> to talk about other genres of film. And so I've invited him onto my podcast where I have a, an open door policy toward all genres except romantic comedy, comedies. That's just that's not going to happen. If there, <laughs> I know there are people out there who keep keep sending me letters and pipe bombs, but it's not going to happen. The romantic comedies are staying off the bloody pit feed. I'm sorry. Look at the name of the thing. <laughs> not happening. Okay, okay, fair enough. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, but most other, most, let's say most genres are mm -hmm. fair game. And in this case, we have decided to dive into this DVD set of eight different William Castle directed westerns, mostly from the 50s. Um, as a matter of fact, I think all of the rest of the ones that we're going to be covering in this, this little series are going to be from the fifties. Interesting stuff. They are, I, I, I wanted to generally call them B Westerns, but I think actually we may have already stretched out of the bounds of what could generally be called uh, a B Western at this point. I, I think you're right. Uh, as the movies progress and we're trying to tackle these basically in order of their original release, uh, 
kind of yeah we're, we're trying to uh in the previous yeah. two films that we did klondike excuse me klein klondike kate <laughs> and conquest of cochise uh, I, I could see those being more in the the b realm i feel like with masterson of kansas and jesse james versus the daltons we are starting to see a little bit more um money involved uh, higher production values yeah a lot more interesting camera work happening they do feel a little bigger the order i watch these in kind of surprised me i watched uh jesse james versus the daltons mm-hmm. first and from the opening scenes I, I you know i'm just i know i'm trying to go in as cold to these films as i can with as little information before i watch them as possible, just so that I can watch them cold. And then once I've, once I've absorbed the film, then I start looking around, doing some research, reading up on them, you know, going through, going through different reference works and seeing what I can find. And the first thing I got to tell you that I was shocked by was that within just the first minute, this movie announces, Hey, this was shot in 3d. I did not know that either going into, and that's actually the order I watched them in too. For whatever reason, Jesse James versus the Daltons was the first one I popped in. And yeah, I, I didn't know that going in, but as the film is going on, I'm like, oh my, this, this is William Castle doing a gimmick and it's not a monster movie. It's great. Yeah, I know. I know. And it, and it's weird in that obviously, you know, he's, he's not in control of the production of these films. These were made by Columbia pictures. And so this is one of those situations where, the, whether he wanted to do a gimmick or not, it was, you know, this was uh, what was required. And I wonder if, you know, these 3D films, I, I have to, I have to say, I was only vaguely aware of the fact that he had directed any of the 3D films that were, uh, you know, the big thing during that, uh, early fifties blip, you know, that, 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 that first wave of uh, 3D productions, that you know were put in place by the Hollywood studios, trying desperately to fight against the idea that people might stay home and watch things on TV. Um, this was you know one of those big in- ex- enhancements to the cinema process, trying to get more people to come out to see movies, and you know along with you know big giant wide screens, you know CinemaScope and all the other uh, various ways in which pictures were shot starting in uh, about 52, 53, uh, to try to draw people in because of, well, as you said, a gimmick. Yeah, I, I was really surprised by that. Is this the first time Castle did anything with a gimmick? I, I don't know. I'd have to go back and look at his filmography. But it's it's interesting to know that, that maybe the seeds were started or were laid here, were planted here. Well, my information tells me and uh, it, I did a count, and it does look like he shot three different films. This one and two others okay. in 3D during his days at uh, Columbia, uh, which, you know, not a shock, but uh, I was just not expecting it. And, of course, I don't think that we're ever going to get a chance to see this film or his other two, you know, Western pictures. And I'm assuming they were Westerns. Now that I re- now that I think about it, I don't really know. But I don't know that we're ever going to get a shot to have some, you know, repertory theater or anything like that show us this film in 3D or that this film is ever going to get issued on 3D and Blu-ray, you know, on a Blu-ray or anything like that. When you go to the Internet Movie Database and look up Jesse James versus the Daltons, the poster image that comes up looks like the cover of a Blu-ray or an HD disc because it says HD right across the top of it. So that tells me there's a master of this somewhere out there that may even look better than what Mill Creek has. Whether or not it's in 3D, I don't know. I did some looking. I couldn't find anything, but... It'd be nice. It'd be kind of cool because there's there's a particular fight scene in this I'd love to see in 3D. <laughs> Actually, yeah. Um, not not all of the 
most of the 3D stuff is exactly what anybody who's sure. picturing an early 1950s film shot in the 3D process can imagine. Uh, but there are a few moments that are really kind of surprising. I'm, uh, some of the stunt work is is shot to be a 3D effect, and that's pretty cool. Yeah, it was really neat. Um, and I don't want to get too far ahead of things, but yeah, towards the end, there's a, a fight sequence that I really liked. And leading up to that, too, there's some movement that happens. I had forgotten that the movie was in 3D or supposed to be in 3D until one of these movements happens. I'm like, oh, yeah, that's right. It's a 3D movie. So, <laughs> you know, which I think probably speaks to the quality of the film. If, you know, I'm wrapped up in the story enough to forget that it's supposed to be in 3D. Let's talk about the film in, in broad outline first. I don't, sure. I don't want to uh, take a run through the entire plot line and ruin everything. Although, to be honest, it's a short film. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's uh, – was this one uh, an hour? It's 60 – about 64 or 65 minutes. Am I wrong? Yeah. Just barely over an hour. Uh, an barely, hour five, I think. Yeah. Barely feature length. Uh, which, you know, nothing wrong with that. But that does point to the, the kind of B nature of this. I'm sure this was – Oh, sure. Shot to be, to, I'm sure it was shot to fill out uh, a probably a 3D double bill, uh, but I, d- I don't know that for sure. But the uh, and I, I also I, I don't know what films it may have been uh, paired with. Um, but the um, first thing that I noticed as soon as you're into the story, the name of the film is Jesse James versus the Daltons. It came out in 1954, which is of course you know during the the. High, it's a high water mark, really, of the of the 3D process in sure. the remix. Uh, it had burned itself out not more than about 18 months later. But the um, most interesting thing to me is that once you get the story, once you're in, in, once you are introduced to the main characters and you've got a sense of what's going on, there's a part of me that would really love to. I, I did hunt around, but there's a part of me that is pretty sure that this film was originally going to be called something like The Son of Jesse James. Yeah, I, I wonder about that too. Uh, the, and not to ruin the surprise or spoil too much, but yeah, one of the characters in the title really isn't in the movie. <laughs> well, let's go ahead and not let's go ahead and spoil that because yeah. that is something that I think is a bit of a cheat because Jesse James. By the way, folks, Jesse James is not in this film, and one of the more interesting things about it, at least for me initially, and you know, as the as the film was perking along 
was uh, the fact that what what we have is a main character who is he thinks he's been told at least that he is uh, he is the son of Jesse James or he might be the son of Jesse James. Now that's all well and good, except this guy is clearly a grown man, and um, this story takes place well after Jesse James was shot and killed. Um, and the film does get the, the specifics of those things, right? It does, you know, it, it, it's pretty, I'm pretty, I'm pretty sure that the producers and script and the script writer were well aware that we can't go too far afield from the facts of the matter involving, you know, the death of Jesse James. So what they try to do is they, they try to, they try to play around with the idea that Jesse James faked his death, that he and, um, uh, the man who killed him faked Jesse's death and that he's still alive somewhere. This is actually, I have to admit, I, I, I felt, I felt it was kind of interesting. I'm sure that sometimes I'm sure that a lot of people will consider it to be a contrived thing, but at the same time, it's, you know, it's a movie. So if they wanted to play around with that and then have <laughs> Jesse James still be alive after the time that he was supposedly, you know, shot in the back, Hey, that could, that could be an interesting movie too. It's not the film they wanted to make, and it's not yeah it make. But what 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 did you th- what did you think of the the basic idea for the story itself? Well, the setup I thought was interesting, and you know, as I learn more about Western films and Western literature and Western television over the years, I've come to accept that historically you're not going to find <laughs> the historical accuracy of all this. I mean, the Dalton Gang pretty much dissolved in 18, you know, stopped operating in 1892. Jesse James uh, died in 1882. So I don't know where this kind of lines lines up in terms of the actual history. And really, so a lot of these characters, including characters from the next movie we're going to talk about, have become these, these legends. They're part of lore. So, of course, they're going to tell different stories using them and, you know, sanitize them a little bit and, you know, file off the rough edges a little bit. And, you know, it, it's, it is what it is. That we've got a guy running around saying that he thinks he's the son of Jesse James. I thought it was an interesting setup. It does kind of conflict a little bit uh, in terms of his motivations seem to be a little murky. They kind of go back and forth between finding his dad versus finding something else. Right. Is this really what he's into or is he really trying to follow it because he wants to reunite? You know, what, what's going on there? Uh, and I felt like he kind of went back and forth on that. It wasn't really a clear through line in terms of what his goals were, but I liked the setup. I thought it was interesting. And I liked that he was kind of using some underhanded tactics to get the Daltons to show him where things were. I thought that was kind of neat. Well, I agree with you that I think that the film, I, I won't just say his motivations are murky. I think that the whole narrative is a little murky and it gets a little, um, thin at a, at points within this really short film as to why we're bothering with this whole process in the first place, because it seems like there's a more interesting story to be told in this vein. And this movie is kind of moving. It's it's kind of picked its path. And no matter how many little tendrils there are that might draw it onto another path, it's going to stay on this path. And it's kind of strange because they go to the point. I mean, they even, they go so far as to introduce uh, uh, the character of Bob Ford, who's the man who shot Jesse James and killed him and then paint him in a sympathetic light, which right. it, it, not, not that I'm against that as far as, you know, fictionalizing these kind of things are concerned, but at the same time, it's an odd choice because, you know, as we've already told you, Jesse James ain't in this movie. <laughs> so there's, if, if, 
if you walked into a movie with Jesse James as the title and you expected this character to show up, I don't know, maybe you're a little horked. Maybe you get a little angry. Right. I don't fall into that category, but I could see it back in 1954. If you were fairly well versed in the legend of Jesse James and his death, and you went into this film, let's put it this way, all the way up through, um, oh, I don't know, today, people have strong opinions about uh, the, the James gangs, the Daltons, um, and and whether or not those those opinions really are rooted in anything more than just, you know, the legends and the, the kind of myth- mythological elements of the West that people have a tendency to to kind of paint over reality with. I don't know that painting Bob Ford as a semi-heroic character would have gone over all that well. And I, I, I struggled to find another movie that, that tried to do that. Um, this may be unique in trying to paint the, the, the killer of Jesse James as, uh, like I say, a, 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 an elder, elderly, well, not elderly, but middle-aged good guy teaming up with uh, someone to to right wrongs near the end of the near the end of a film. I can't think of anything either. I did think his role in the movie felt odd. Uh, the way they kind of put him into play here, it felt just weird. And and you know Jesse James, yeah, he was he was a bank robber. You know, he robbed trains, did some pretty despicable things, sure. But he was also kind of viewed as a folk hero and that sort of thing. I, I think a lot of these characters from this time in America's history of the Western era, nobody's black and white. I mean, there's so many different shades of gray to who these people were. And I wasn't really totally on board with how they're portrayed this particular shade of gray when it came to Bob Ford. He just seemed like this elderly guy, like he wasn't old, but he felt like this elderly, like I'm going to, I don't know. It's just something off about him. Well, they, you know, they grade the the, the actor's hair and um, when he comes in, it's like, I'll be honest, when the character comes into the, to the narrative, I'm like, oh, well, good. Now we're going to get some stinking answers on some of this stuff. And we do. But it's still oddly, I, mean, I won't say it was unsatisfying, but it was also not, not what, not, what, not what I was expecting exactly. But that's not necessarily a bad thing. And I have to say that I find the ending of the film probably the strongest part of it. Um the the film for such a short running time has a has a lot of things that I feel could have gone by even a little bit quicker. Um, there's an oddness to the structure. The film starts with the main character Joe Branch riding into a town where a woman is about to be lynched for uh, for a murder, <laughs> which th- that caught me a little off guard too. Actually, I wasn't expecting to run into that. Well, I like that. Uh, that that's a that's an opening scene that I'm happy to see. That's pretty. Oh, oh yeah. And yeah, he, I, I think so too. I didn't dislike it. It just caught me off guard and it's like, oh, this is this is different. So Yeah. And the the uh as soon as Joe Branch hears the name of this woman they're about to hang, um, he obviously recognizes the name, rides up onto the the uh the uh, gallows they've built, grabs her and rides off. Once they're far enough away that he feels that he can slow down and talk to her, he explains that he'd come to that town to find her and to ask her some questions because he thinks she might have some information about Jesse James. This is where we learn that he's supposedly the son of Jesse James. And this is how this comes about. He 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 as a baby was left with uh, a, a couple 
uh, a, you know, a settler couple to raise. And the only, the only indication of where this baby came from was a note that this guy, Joe Branch still has that was signed by Jesse James, basically just saying, you know, you know, raise this child, not claiming, you know, not claiming, claiming, you know, parenthood of this child, but just saying, raise this kid. You don't know Coffeeville. Corey Bayless runs it, lives it, breathes it. He has it right in his pocket. He's made millions there. I killed his son. You didn't like his money? Bayless stole it down. I shot Frank because Frank wouldn't marry me. Now you've heard both sides. Believe what you want. Well, I was going to do that anyhow. Whenever you're ready, tell me why you saved my life this morning. I don't have a gun on me. I got your name from Virgil Spanner. Yes. You knew him? My father did. Yeah. Old Pete Manning. He used to ride with Spanner in the old James gang. Dad paid for his mistakes in jail. When he got out, he ran a livery stable in Coffeeville, and he was honest. Only the town knew about him. They held it against you today, didn't they? Maybe. Maybe they did. Virgil Spanner doesn't think Jesse James is dead. Why, Jesse James died more than ten years ago. There's a marker on his grave. Some say he's dead. But there are others. Like Spanner. And if he is alive? I'll find him. You know, you're one of the few that haven't heard about Joe Branch. Most everyone else thinks Jesse James was my father. sure had a similar thought to me which was you know anybody can write jesse james name on a piece of paper to get somebody to do something (laughs) that doesn't necessarily mean that jesse james wrote the note yeah i thought that too i think the the leap in logic overall story-wise seemed a little fishy but then i also think about this kid growing up not knowing who his parents were or, or not knowing for sure he was left somewhere. I can see maybe wanting to hold on to something like that. My, well, my real dad was this famous outlaw guy, you know, so I can see that a little bit. But yeah, overall, it just seems a little weak in the storytelling of the film. Needless to say, he decides that he, he for some reason, believes that Jesse James is still alive. Of course, he has no real rational reason to think that this is true. He just he thinks that it's possible that Jesse James faked his death and is still alive somewhere. So he wants to find uh, the Daltons, the Dalton gang, which is still active at this point in time, and ask them if they know anything about it or have any information that might lead Joe Branch to finding the supposedly still alive Jesse James. And he sets about... uh, ingratiating himself or at least bringing himself to the attention of the Daltons by um, stealing, basically basically robbing a train before they can get to it, (laughs) which is actually pretty damn clever. 
Yeah, I do like the setup, how he tries to get himself in contact or involved with the Daltons. I like that quite a bit. That was pretty cool. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But um, once he's in contact with the Daltons, um, to make a to make a, a short story shorter, let's just say that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've been holding on to that one. Hang on. <laughs> um, Joe uh, eventually is uh, given the facts of the matter on uh, what his uh, lineage is. Um, and and whether or not it involves Jesse James, even though Jesse James does not show up in the storyline, and um, the all the the uh, woman uh, Kate Manning, played by Barbara Lawrence, that he rescued from the gallows at the beginning of the film, uh, he's been uh, she's she's someone with a with a certain a certain amount of information, so she's stuck around and helped him during this entire process, and uh, the film ends with them happily being married, which. Well, I also felt weird. (laughs) I have to say one of the things that I kind of liked about the movie as it went along was that, um, they were as, uh, Joe branch and, uh, Kate Manning are running, you know, are are going from town to town and pretending to be, um, you know, who they're pretending to be. They're very obviously living and staying together as if they were a married couple or if they were, you know, a romantically entangled couple. But the movie goes, you know, goes out of its way to not romantically entangle them. I think it just was a it was probably that they didn't want to spend a lot of time in a B Western of this type on any kind of romantic subplots. And that's fine. I mean, I understand that. But then uh, to go through this whole storyline and then at the end go and we're going to get married. It was just like, wow, no lead up at all. huh? Yeah, it just kind of happened. It did give us one of my favorite lines in the film, which is, I think, the final line of the film, which I don't want to say because it is the end of the movie and spoiler and all that. But uh, it, it also involved a character in the movie that I thought was going to be a lot more involved when he was first introduced at the very beginning, uh, Father Kerrigan. Yeah. I really thought he was going to be a little bit more involved, and I, I kind of liked him. Uh, he was played by Nelson Lee, and you know, he was he was a fun character, I thought. So... Um, I wish I, I, I had more time. He, with he him. was a fun character, but, and you're right. It, w- that scene he has near the beginning of the film. I mean, he's, he has that scene at the beginning of the film, basically so he can have the scene at the end of the film. And that's about it. Pretty much. Pretty much. Let's talk briefly about the cast because there, there are, let's talk about the guy who plays Joe branch first, Brett King, who uh, was pretty interesting character in, in, in certain ways. He, uh, this is one of the more fascinating things to me about actors who uh, came up and kind of made a name for themselves, you know, large or small in the film industry in the 50s and 60s. And that is that a lot of them uh, served in the military during World War Two. As a matter of fact, almost all of them. Yeah, did. that's true. And uh, I mean, he worked he was uh, part of the United States Army Air Corps and, you know, got a Purple Heart and a Distinguished Flying Cross. And he was a fighter pilot. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah, he was a fighter pilot, and um, so quite quite the military career. And then uh, after he's discharged, he began acting in in feature films in Hollywood. And of course, being a soldier, this is what happened with a lot of uh, soldiers who 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 worked their way into being on screen in Hollywood. Is that what ended up what ended up happening? Is they would they would get cast in some you know in combat films and war films. Sure. Often, often they would get, you know, kind of like Audie Murphy, you'd get cast in films where they're trying to tell a fictionalized version of either your life or some event that you were actually present at. 
And some of these guys got, you know, hired on to do uh, just technical advisement on certain films. And then some of them, you know, got onto screen as well. Mm -hmm. Some of them were aiming for that and some of them weren't. I mean, you can talk about that all the way up through modern day with my favorite story of that type being uh, uh, Arlie Ermey, who was originally hired on to Stanley Kubrick's Full Metal Jacket as an advisor and ended up playing one of the central roles. And uh, from there, from there goes, you know, an entire, you know, acting career that he didn't really set out to have. But uh, because, I mean, he was actually that character you see on screen in Full Metal Jacket. He was a drill sergeant. Mm -hmm. Well, same with uh, Brett King is when he first started working in film, he's, he's doing films like Battleground, which is, you know, this, this big World War II film with Van Johnson and uh, John Hodiak, by the way, the guy who was in, uh, who played Cochise in the film we covered last time out. <laughs> oh, but uh, King, you know, also was in Flying, Flying Leathernecks and Battle of Guadalcanal and, you know, a lot of films like that. It looks as if this film, Jesse James versus the Daltons, may have been one of his final uh, film projects before he slid completely into television. Okay. And uh, which is which is pretty cool. He did. He had a pretty lucrative television career working in a lot of TV, um, a lot of Westerns, it looks like <laughs> yeah, a, a lot of Westerns, including Bat Masterson and Gunsmoke and uh, Zangray Theater. Um, he did, you know, he did some episodes of Dragnet and things like that, too. And he actually ended up being in the the uh, I think the last couple of episodes of the Green Hornet on TV as well. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, he he, uh, he didn't die until 1999. He was uh, he was 78 at the time, and uh, he he retired I think from uh, acting sometime in the 60s or early 70s. Okay. And, um, basically because he and his wife uh, developed uh, a, the Coral Sands Hotel in the Bahamas and ran that. That's how they made their living after that. And I guess he he may have just lived in the Bahamas the rest of his life. Oh, interesting. Yeah, I didn't know much about him. I just reviewed what I could find on the Internet Movie Database, which may or may not be 100% accurate. But uh, I did find it interesting that he did appear in a TV series, uh, Yancey Derringer, and actually played Jesse James in that, <laughs> which I thought that was kind of neat to, to stumble across. He also was in uh, a science fiction series that I really enjoy and someday wouldn't mind talking about on Monster Kid Radio proper at some point, Men Into Space. He was in one episode of that. Oh, I'm aware of that series, but I've never seen it. It used to air, was it MeTV? One of the retro channels was airing it. I don't remember if they still do or not. Um, but yeah, I really dug that. And I'll have to go back and check out the episode he's in. So I'll keep just, an eye out because I, I am curious to see that kind of stuff. I assume I assume that it was it was it a 1950s show or a 1960s show? Um, I believe 60s. I'm curious because some of the you can see some of the like science fiction theater stuff from the 50s that are you know that are still around on uh, kinescopes and yep. uh, it, sometimes sometimes the it's you're you're, you're looking at it through mud. But. Yeah, that's true. Uh, 1960, I think, is when it was a thing, uh, and it. Is that in the public domain? I don't know if it's in the public domain or not, but it's one of those oh, things that yeah, turns up. Actually, look on YouTube. Yeah. yeah. Well, uh, the lady who plays Kate Manning is an actress named Barbara Lawrence, and uh, I knew from looking at her face, I knew her from somewhere. And uh, finally, after after looking over her, after looking over her career, it it finally hit me. Oh, she was in Chronos. Oh, okay, yeah. 
which, you know, isn't the greatest science fiction film ever. 1957's Kronos uh, with a K. Uh, not not the most memorable film ever, but it, I, it has a warm place in my heart. Um, but bigger than that, and this is where, I mean, she's kind of outshined by the, the, the major scene that she's that she should be famous for. She was in, uh, in Oklahoma in 1955. Uh, the reason she's kind of outshined is that her big scene in Oklahoma is kind of a knockdown drag out fight with, uh, Gloria Graham. And so, uh, uh, in general where a, a scene that would probably imprint Barbara Lawrence on most people's brains forever, she's kind of overshadowed because she's in the scene with Gloria Graham and Gloria Graham is going to kind of own any scene that she's a part of. So that's just, that's the way that goes. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> but she's, she's quite good. I, I also had seen her in uh, captain, uh, captain from Castile, which is a Tyrone power film. And, um, Oh, unfaithfully yours from 1948, which is a, which is a great little film. If you ever get a chance to see it. Okay. Uh, I'm just reminded that we sp- we spend both of these we spend we've spent uh, both of these shows uh, ref- re- referencing and recommending all kinds of unrelated films from classic Hollywood to people who are listening to us talk about <laughs> these two westerns. <laughs> uh, well, let's see if we can find a way to talk about tor- the Torchy Blaine films before we're done with this episode too. <laughs> okay, yeah, I'll uh, hmm, let me see what I can do here. <laughs> well, I liked Barbara Lawrence in this film. I thought. Uh, she was one of the stronger performers, even if her character also kind of wavers a little bit and doesn't make some sense at some points. Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. There's a, there comes a point in the narrative where you're wondering why this woman is hanging around. And I think that, um, this is just a suspicion on my part. I suspect that there was a romantic subplot that would have explained why she was sticking around with Joe branch for longer than seemed normal or necessary. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think it got trimmed out. It may have even been filmed. Who knows? Or it may have been cut at script level. Who, you know, how are we to tell? But the, uh, that, that I think is something that, you know, a normal viewer of this is going to start to wonder at a certain point, why is Kate Manning hanging out still? You know, I mean, uh, don't get me wrong. I'm not unhappy. The blonde woman is still on screen, but why? Yeah, I was, I, I felt the same way that it, there must've been something in development in the script stage. I can't imagine they actually shot it, but there had to have been something there to explain why, why, why the sudden change in attitude that she has toward our lead character and, and why she's sticking around. It's just something was lost somewhere. It, it doesn't ruin the movie. I mean, it's a short film, so you kind of just kind of deal with it and move on, but yeah, it did seem missing. Well, another, uh, one more actor I'd really like to talk about a fair amount is an actor who's in both films that we're covering. Okay. James Griffith. In this film, he plays, uh, I think it's uh, Bob Dalton. Yeah, he plays Bob Dalton, who's kind of uh, the leader of the Dalton gang. And as soon as I saw his face, I thought, oh, man, I know this guy. I know this guy. I know this guy. Who is this guy? Um, And when I looked him up, I realized, oh, because, oh, of course I know this guy. I've seen him in roughly seven billion things. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Including a lot of uh, older television. But he, uh, w- once again, he's another one of those guys who, you know, was you know, fought in World War II. Well, you know, was part of the, he was in the Marine Corps during World War II, and when he started and he, he he started doing stage work after the, he was discharged from uh, the, the military, moved from the stage to films. Um, he did uh, the film noir uh, Blonde Ice in 1948. From then on, his career of uh, mostly supporting roles, honestly. 
never okay. I don't think he was ever considered, you know, a name enough to, you know, to even really be like a secondary level. He's more of a character actor. But he was in a lot of films and we're talking a lot of westerns too. So having him turn up in this, you know, both of these films is not a real big surprise. Um what had really tricked what it really tricked my brain really hard was that uh, about two years ago I started watching a lot of episodes of uh, the uh, Western TV series Trackdown, which which starred Robert Culp. Um, so it was a short lived series, but it's pretty pretty darn good. Plus, I'll watch Robert Culp do anything. And, uh, <laughs> I'm serious. I love that guy. I think Robert Culp was brilliant. And uh, uh, but uh, James Griffith appeared in uh, about a dozen episodes of that show as the town barber. And the, and, and um, so I've seen him pop up there repeatedly, you know, and once again, just a re- just a really small bit role, but he was in so many stinking things. And like I say, he's in not just in this film as, a, as the leader of the Dalton gang, but he has an amazing role in the next film we'll talk about. Yeah, definitely. Uh, it was kind of cool to see him in both films just to kind of connect him a little bit more. Yeah, yeah, and there there are some other uh, you know actor connections between these two films, but he's the most prominent and he's the most impressive because he really had he's he he has such a prominent role in the, in the next film that's really impressive. I think sometimes with a lot of these uh, lower budget or even bigger budget westerns from this era, a lot of times it's easy to just get a guy with, who looks good in a cowboy hat and put him in the movie, whether he can act very well or not uh, in terms of like really bringing a difference in character from project from project to project. And I feel like this guy did that. Uh, he is, he, he's a great actor and I really enjoyed watching him in both movies and, and seeing the, the contrasting uh, performances was a lot of fun. I thought it was fascinating to discover that uh, Mr. Griffith um in the seventies was still doing, was still doing television. And so he turned yeah. in uh, an episode of the night stalker and Kung Fu and the $6 million man. And as soon as I saw that, I went, Hey, I think I own those series. I could go find him. <laughs> so <laughs> have to fight to, to, to not go unpack all the DVDs and start pl- plowing through them, trying to find <laughs> this one <laughs> character actor for no good reason. I just imagine the look on my poor, poor girlfriend's face as I go, no, 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 you don't understand this actor. I'm going to, I'm going to watch this one section of this one episode. And she's just going, we're packed for a move. You dumbass! Stop pulling <laughs> things out of boxes. <laughs> so, uh, one other thing yeah. before we, uh, <laughs> before we move off of this film, um, I got kind of curious about, uh, the screenwriter, Robert E. Kent. And, uh, the reason I, Got kind of curious about him is strangely enough, and I don't know why, but sometimes credits on films stick in my head. And for some reason, there was something about his name that rang a bell. He, he must have been a really quick screenwriter because he wrote several movies for producer Sam Katzman. Of course, Katzman produced this movie for Columbia. Sure. Katzman was uh, quick and cheap. <laughs> yes, he was. And uh, – what I, I cannot for the life of me figure out why Robert E. Kent's name stuck in my head, but it made me go look him up. And he wrote several screenplays for a lot of movies that I have seen. And it's really weird when I started counting them up. Uh, first of all, I think the movie where his, his name stuck in my head is The Werewolf from 1956. Ah, uh, see, I like that one. I kind of like that film, too. It's not a great film, but it's another Sam Katzman film. 
Uh, and so I, I was like, as soon as I saw that credit listed under his name, I went, ah, ha, ha, that's where I know this guy from. But then I looked around and I went, hey, he wrote three Vincent Price films in the 60s, too. Twice Told Tales, Diary of a Madman, and, um, oh, Tarnation, one other. Uh, Tower of London, right? Oh, yeah, the 62 Tower of London that Corman made. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so uh, you look you look at his, his career and – he must have been fast because you look at the number of scripts that his name is attached to uh, during the 40s and 50s. I mean, he wrote a Falcon film. He wrote a Charlie Chan movie. He wrote uh, a couple or three Dick Tracy, Dick Tracy films, just all kinds of stuff. And yeah. it's, it's, you know, I, I like I say, I have no idea why his name stuck in my head, but it made me look him up. And now I'm so glad I did because I, I, there's there on this weird through line from – Charlie Chan and Dick Tracy and Falcon films all the way to 1960s Vincent Price films. And it's like, oh, I have a name attached to it. Ah. <laughs> he really is kind of all over the place. But, I mean, good for him. Obviously, a, a working act, a working writer, which uh, as somebody who's starting to publish now, you know, <laughs> totally respect. Uh, I mean, if you go back far enough, you can see things like Zombies on Broadway he worked on, which is, uh, you know, a, one of the lower budget. Legosi efforts, but you know, still a lot of fun. Uh, he looks like he was doing some historical uh, pieces. I don't want to call them epics because Katzman didn't spend a <laughs> lot of money, but you know, <laughs> so these historical pieces like the Iron Glove, um, just all over the place, and good for him. Yeah, I'd, I'd like to see the Iron Glove and uh, the Golden Hawk. Uh, just just from reading brief synopsises, they sound like they'd be entertaining little films. Yeah, and I want to see. Hot Rods to Hell, just because of the title. I, I don't know anything about it, but it's a title that I need oh, to see. Uh, <laughs> uh, I can recommend that one. Uh, okay, okay. It's it's, uh, it's available, or at least it was available on DVD. I think Warner's, did Warner Brothers put that thing out? Um, right. I've got it as part of a, a set of three films that also included a Zero Hour and, um, oh darn, I can't remember the other. Um, it's... Uh, it's kind of legendary in a way because it stars Dana Andrews and it's near the end of Dana Andrews career when oh. the, the alcoholism was kind of taking its toll. Okay. It, which, which, you know, I know that sounds bad to, to recommend it for, you know, that kind of reason, but the, the, the stick up his butt character that Dana Andrews plays in, in hot road, hot rods to hell is, um, it's worth the price of admission, man. I mean, <laughs> he's, he's the most conservative dad, whatever done, done dadding. And it's incredible. <laughs> okay. It's, 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 uh, yeah. If you have any curiosity about hot rods to hell, see it. Okay. Well, I, the title had me alone. You're just upping the ante here. Bump it up a little bit further of, on my uh, list of movies I need to see. Well, I mean, it also stars, you know, a young Mimsy farmer. So there's another nice little <laughs> enticement, shall we say? Okay. Okay. Well, I will uh, let you know what I think of it when I see it. Okay, so um, before we move on to the second feature, what uh, what's your general assessment overall of Jesse James versus the Daltons? Um, I enjoyed it. I I feel like there are some things that could be better explained or tightened up. But I mean, overall, I dug it. Do I like it as much as the other two films that we've already talked about in a previous episode? I don't know. I don't think I did. Um, I think I like Klondike Kate a lot more, uh, and. Conquest of Cochise has got Robert Stack. So, I mean, that was just a blast to watch. So this one, I mean, it's okay, but if I had to rank them, I, I wouldn't put it higher than those two. What about you? Yeah, this is uh, of the uh, 
of the three, well, of the four that we we've talked sure. about so far, including you know both the ones we'll talk about in this one. Uh, this is the least of them, but I don't think it's a bad film. I just think that it it's it's aggressively middle of the road. It's not. Yeah. It just doesn't really have anything that stands out or that that makes it memorable specifically more than just the kind of uh, oddness of being able to say, hey, when is a Jesse James film not a Jesse James film? You know, Uh, (laughs) see, that's not a turnoff for me. I mean, one of my favorite Hammer films is The Brides of Dracula and Dracula is not in that. So, you know, that's not really a turnoff, but still, yeah, there is no Jesse James and Jesse James versus the Daltons. Although you could convince me to pay a ticket price to see this in 3D just out of the cur- uh, just out of oh, curiosity. I, I would love to see this in 3D. If I could see this in 3D, it might even go up on my list of, uh, of breaking them down in terms of enjoyment. Because there is a fight scene uh, when <laughs> uh, it involves a boat, it involves a couple of axes, and it's great. <laughs> yes, I agree. I would love to see that in 3D. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. I, I, something else I just wanted to mention is that this has um, – I, I don't know if anybody involved in the making of this movie would have called it this. But to me, it's a callback because anytime you're you're seeing a 3D movie and someone is it, – it's, it's a camera shot where someone's pulling, pulling a six-gun, pointing it directly at the camera and pulling the trigger. <laughs> yeah. What that says to me is – uh, this is a reference to the classic, uh, you know, uh, Great Train Robbery. The you know oh. that, that very early silent film. Yeah, if not, you know, one of the very first you know narrative features ever made. And uh, there's a very you know the very famous shot uh, that's very that's very much that where someone pulls out a a pistol, points it at the camera, and pulls the trigger. Yeah, and of course that was. You know, in the early days of silent films, that that rattled audiences pretty badly because this is not something that was expect. You know, there was expected. You know, if you see someone pointing a gun at you, your in- instinct is to duck. And of course, <laughs> yeah, um, decades slash yeah. a century later, that's very different. <laughs> yeah, no, I I didn't think about that, but that is uh, one of those. Like, you know, for those of us who are really interested in like the history of cinema. We know that shot, you know, and you can find it online. I'm sure you find it all over the place. Totally see the reference there. Like I say, not sure if that's what Castle or any of his compatriots were aiming for, but that's that's just what it's that's what rang a bell for me immediately. I have to. I don't know if it was intentional, but I would not be surprised if it was. Castle did have an appreciation and knowledge of silent cinema. He worked with a number of silent cinema stars in uh, the Hollywood story with Julie Adams. Uh, A lot of of classic actors and actresses from that era he had worked with at one point or another. So I'm sure he was aware of cinema history, that sort of thing. Yeah. Maybe it was intentional. But either way, we can project that onto it. (laughs) (laughs) Why not? Let's do that. Why not? <laughs> He's not here to defend himself, so <laughs> no, no. We can we can make whatever crazy ass claim we want to now. That's right. <laughs> All right, hold on. Let's uh, let's uh, take a quick break, and then we'll come back and talk about our second feature. Sounds good, man. Prepare for a spine-tingling, nerve-shattering podcast featuring all your favorite monsters. You won't believe your ears when you listen to Monster Monster Kid Kid Radio. Radio. Hear your host, Derek M. Cook, 
and his ever-rotating stable of guests discuss your favorite classic and sometimes not-so-classic monster movies. Subscribe to Monster Kid Radio through iTunes or Stitcher, or visit monsterkidradio.net before the next weekly episode of Monster Monster Kid Kid Radio. Go through the archives for interviews with Sarah Karloff, Victoria Price, and Joel Hodgson. Listen to discussions about movies like Creature from the Black Lagoon, Island of Terror, and King Kong. And don't forget convention coverage from Monster Bash and the HP Lovecraft Film Festival. Classic Monsters. Modern Talk. And the head of Rondo Hatton. Only on Monster Kid Radio! I am Dr. Lee Cushing. Welcome to my Chamber of Horrors. Dr. Cushing's Chamber of Horrors is a serialized monster rally novel in the tradition of the classic Universal and Hammer horror films. It's written by Stephen D. Sullivan, the award-winning author of White Zombie, Daikaiju Attack, Manos, The Hands of Fate, and the original chill role-playing game. My goal is to recreate the thrills of the monster vs. monster films that we all love. We'll have vampires, werewolves, mummies, psychic twins, and scheming madmen. And that's just in the first storyline. Now you can get Dr. Cushing's Chamber of Horrors and other monster stories sent directly to your email for as little as a dollar a month. For just two dollars, you'll get all the chapters in advance, plus bonus stories and other perks. Sign up now at CushingHorrors.com or visit SDSullivan.com for a Patreon link. I do hope you've enjoyed your visit. Please come again and remember, the chamber is always waiting for its next victim. Comanche, Kiowa, Cheyenne. They fought long and hard to hold their hunting ground against the westward push of the white man's frontier till a peace treaty was signed in the 1870s in Kansas. But there was no peace in Dodge City. Outlaws and gunfighters took up where the Indians left off and turned that trail town into a battleground. Dodge was a rich prize, center of the buffalo trade, end of the trail for cattle herds driving up from Texas to meet the railroad spur to Abilene. Where trail hands were paid off, girls and gamblers were there to take it away. Where bad men shot it out with the lawmen. Until at last the law settled down in Dodge. The law was written in bullets from a six-gun in the hand of a man named Masterson. A pair of polished boots on a dusty trail street. One man moving slow, other men moving fast to clear the way. That's how it was that hot July afternoon when Bat Masterson took a walk down Front Street to meet up with Doc Holliday. And folks all knew that only one of them would be walking back. Sure there's no other way to do it, Bat? He didn't drift back into Dodge by accident. When he crosses Second Street, he knows I'll be there, waiting for him. Can't be any other way. Well, why don't you wait till my brother gets back? He'd listen to Wyatt. Wyatt Earp's as fine a man as ever wore a badge. But he's got a blind spot. Doc Holliday. Doc ain't done no harm this trip. Not yet. Maybe he don't mean to. That's like giving a rattlesnake the first bite. He's a sick man, Virgil. Makes him mad to see anybody healthy. He's a cold-blooded killer. Never killed a man who didn't have a gun in his hand. That's why he's never wound up at the end of a rope. There are plenty of ways to bait a man into a fight. And Holliday knows them all. When you can draw and shoot like he can, it's murder. No matter who draws first. And you can't wait to go down there and meet him. That's my job. And it's Wyatt's too. 
When he was sheriff, yes. Now Wyatt's a federal marshal and I'm sheriff. That makes Doc Holliday my job. I told Doc what would happen if he ever came back to Dodge. Well, he's back. The second William Castle-directed film that we're covering this episode is also from 1954. A uh, little hint, folks, we're going to stay in 1954 for a while. Yeah. William Castle made, well, he at least, there, there were six released films credited to William Castle in 1954. Six. So hang on, folks. <laughs> six released films. Three of them are in this set. Two of them we're talking about today, and then the next time around we'll do the next one. But yeah, uh, <laughs> he was prolific with uh, in the studio system, I guess, during that time. So good for him. Good for him. Well, this one's called Masterson of Kansas. And if you uh, guessed from that that it somehow was about Bat Masterson, Ring the bell, you win. You are correct. <laughs> Masterson of Kansas. This is, um, I got to say, I, I I enjoyed this one a good deal more than the than oh. Jesse Jesse James versus the Daltons. Oh yeah, me too. I'm so glad that I watched them in the opposite order, like you did, because I got to go out on a high note. I really, really liked this one. This one is this was a lot of fun. Uh, there's. Well, let's let's just spell out. We'll, we'll give just the basic plot outline, and then we'll talk about all the various things that I know both of us want to talk about. <laughs> um, because we'll just use the basic plot that that Wikipedia gives, and that'll give us uh, a jumping off point. Because okay. there's a lot to talk about with this film, and it's and it's kind of surprising. This one's a little longer than the previous film. This one is a 72 or 73 minutes in length, which uh, almost makes it an epic. <laughs> when, when, when almost, about, yeah. When you talk about Sam Katzman films anyway, it's almost yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so um, this film is about Bat Masterson. And what, it, what, what we have here is uh, Bat Masterson is a gunslinger. Mm-hmm. Masterson, Wyatt Earp and Doc Holliday come together in a common cause. The three intend to protect an impending land exchange between honest rancher Merrick and peace-seeking Indian chief Yellowhawk against the crooked chicanery of land baron Clay Bennett. Okay, first of all, that was crap. That's not true. Uh, yeah, that, it's it's not really accurate. <laughs> it's not even remote. I'm not. I doubt that whoever wrote that saw this film. Okay. Yeah. So let's back up. Bat Masterson is a gunslinger. I'll give him that. But as we will talk about later on, when I start talking about the actual factuals of Bat Masterson's life, that's just one of about twenty different things Bat Masterson did in his life. Yeah. But story being told here is during the period in which Bat Masterson was uh, the sheriff of Dodge City. During this time, um, he and Wyatt Earp, uh, I'm, not, I'm, never sh- I'm never clear exactly what the relationship between, you know, the, the, the like, you know, who is the boss or the sheriff or the whatever exactly between Masterson and Earp. But Wyatt Earp uh, is away, and Masterson, as the film begins, has uh, previously warned Doc Holliday, whom he has a very contentious relationship with, that if he uh, ever comes back to town, then Masterson will kill him. And what this boils down to is that Masterson is not a fan of the way Doc Holliday uh, will draw people into gunfights so that he may kill them. And Wyatt Earp is basically this, this takes place fully on the uh, other side of the classic old, you know, well-known story of the gunfight at the OK Corral 
And Earp is uh, someone who tries to talk to his friend Masterson and explain that, look, yeah, you know, I don't agree with everything Doc Holliday does as well. But at the same time, he's been there for me and especially in that particular instance. And so for Wyatt Earp, uh, he has two friends who he cares for deeply that are essentially at each other's throat because Holiday seems to have a problem with Masterson. Masterson seems, Masterson seems to have a problem with Holiday, and it's just one of those things where you know eventually these two guys are going to attempt to kill each other. Except, like I say, this is the mid-50s, and the legends of the West are pretty much something that anybody who's going to go to a lot of Westerns is already going to know, at least, like I say, from you know mythology. And so we kind of know how Bat Masterson, we know Bat Masterson did not die in a gunfight and we know how Doc Holliday died. So what kind of story are they telling here? Well, I'm pleased to say that unlike the previous film we talked about, the fictionalized story here is pretty damned interesting. And it doesn't, it, it, this can exist kind of alongside uh, historical reality even though there is absolutely no historical basis as far as I can tell for. Oh no, not at all. <laughs> being some, you know, an animosity between these two men. That seems to be a complete invention of this screenplay. You know, all three of them knew each other. Um, wide open doc holiday. I mean, the movie Tombstone. I mean, it's, it, we, we know they knew each other. And Bat Masterton also knew Wyatt Earp. And uh, occasionally they all work together as well uh, in various capacities. I, Despite the fact that I also cannot think the name uh, Dodge City. I believe the book that I recently read is called Dodge City. It talks about Wyatt Earp and Bat Masterson doing things in their, uh, in, in their history in the town and that sort of thing. Um, so, I mean, they all knew each other. Did they want to kill each other? Were they super tight? I think it was somewhere in between. I think they worked together. Yeah. Maybe a mutual respect, something along those lines. Mm -hmm. But the more you know about these historical characters, and on, honestly, the more interesting they become. And um, I, I, the, I won't say that this movie is more interesting than reality because it's not. As soon as you start digging into the facts, the facts about these particular, you know, individuals' lives, boy, is it intriguing. And you can see why so many books have been written about them. Right. But... This is still a pretty good little story, even though it is, of course, a fictionalized version of all this kind of stuff. Yeah. Uh, a lot of it is just I – mean, it's based on the history, what was going on with uh, the Native Americans and what's going on with them. And But there, are, there is the history there, but this movie does kind of play it up and does all sorts of new things with it, including giving us a reason why Bat Masterson is called Bat, which I did some checking. I did some digging. I've not heard this particular version of the story as to why he was called Bat anywhere else. Yeah, me either. Mo most sources that I've been able to find, some say it's implied that because he actually had a limp, he used a cane and he would swing that around like a bat in battle. Um, but that also could just be part of the legend. Who knows? Well, one thing that I was kind of impressed by, there's a scene in this movie where uh, Masterson, played by George Montgomery, is having a conversation with a character named Amy Merrick, um, mm -hmm. by Nancy Gates. Now, he, this is about halfway through the movie, he explains, essentially something happens and he, talk, he mentions that, uh, he mentions the first person he ever killed. Yes, the first person, yeah. And uh, so he tells, the, he tells a story in the movie, he tells the story of, um, being in love, be, you know, being in a relationship with a woman 
uh, another man, another, an, uh, 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 he was in the military. Another military man, uh, was very jealous of this woman and busted in on the two of them when they were alone and, uh, a gunfight ensued and Masterson killed this guy. Now, what's fascinating is that that story is true. Yes. Uh, that is how things happened. This movie being made in the 1950s leaves out some details, which are really kind of devastating. First of all, yes, he did kill that guy. It was nastier than that, though. Masterson got shot, too. He got shot in the pelvis. Which is where the limp came from. Right. Which is why he used a cane. Yeah. Um, and also, the um, the woman in question was shot and killed as well. Yeah. So... I was fascinated by the fact that this movie is is clearly trying to use actual historical bits and pieces of his life story, which people would have been able to would have been able to know at this point in time. Masterson passed away in 1921. And by the time he passed away in 1921, he was kind of a legendary figure, not just for having you know been a part of the uh, the uh, Wild West, but because he was a sports journalist for the last 20 years of his life. Right. And so. Folding that real bit of his history that a lot of people may have known from dime novels or or whatever lends a lends a certain amount of credibility to the fictionalized story that he that is being told around it as well. And I think that's pretty damn smart. I think it's interesting uh, that they were able to use that bit of real history here. Uh, He the way he tells it in the film is that that's the first person he ever killed. In truth, it's his first gunfight. He was involved in some military actions beforehand. Uh, but in those situations, it would have been an impersonal kind of thing. And they were just defending something. So he was firing back, that sort of thing. It was a five-day siege that he was involved with at the uh, Adobe Walls, wherever that is. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, so I'm sure there were some deaths there. But this is, you know, the thing, you're a siren in the background. Sorry. Uh, <laughs> But this <laughs> this story that we're being told is the first time that he actually killed somebody up close. It was a personal death. And I, again, I thought it was really interesting to bring that into this. And like you said, people are going to know the lore. This is the 50s. There's television shows featuring Jesse James, Billy the Kid, Bat Masterson, uh, all of them, Wyatt Earp. You know, they've been on television, so the stories are already out there. So to tie into the history here a little bit gives it just a little bit more truth. And I liked that a lot. I really did, too, because I, I think... Bat Masterson's a fascinating character, a lot of interesting segments of his life. And I, and I, I, I'll, I'll admit that what got me curious about the character a few years ago was the, uh, I think 1960s television series. Okay. Uh, I caught, I caught a few episodes, uh, just out of curiosity. It's another one of the, you know, half a hundred half hour Western television series produced in the 1960s. And you get curious because I, I had at least knew I at least had heard the name Bat Masterson, but didn't know much about him. And I really didn't know that much about him until just this week when I really started reading about him because of this film. But he's one of those guys who doesn't he doesn't become someone you dislike the more you know about him. He actually becomes somebody that you're more impressed by, because the thing is, the more you learn about Jesse James, he was a cold blooded murderer. Okay? Yeah, he started digging into the deep. There's yeah. that. 
there's that episode of the Brady Bunch where one of the kids is idolizing people like Jesse James and all that. And his parents are all so concerned that he's idolizing somebody who killed people. And then he has that terrible nightmare where he's on a train with all of his family and Jesse James shows up and kills them all. And it's like, oh, no. Yeah. So, yeah. Oh, God, I'm having a flashback to that episode of the Brady Bunch now. I haven't thought about that in so many years. Oh, Lord. Wow. But you're you're (laughs) right. Uh, You're right. I mean, that's the thing is that with a lot of these people – the more you learn about their lives, the the more you see things in shades of gray. But with some of them, you see they really weren't nice folk, okay? Yeah. They really were not. And um, I think that uh, j- just a little little bit of personal history, the thing, the film that woke uh, that woke that up in my mind um, was a combination of seeing two films around the same time uh, in my life, which was in my early teenage years. Uh, one of my favorite movies of all time, the classic film The Wild Bunch by Sam Peckinpah, right around the same time that I saw Walter Hill's amazing film about the James Younger gang, The Long Riders. Oh, okay. Now, both of those films are brutally violent. They do not shy away from the the horrors of guns and bullets striking flesh and the realities of what it means to fire a weapon at someone they those those films while the wild bunch does paint its characters uh in a more sympathetic light because of the position that they're in near the near kind of the end of middle age for these people the long riders is trying to be fairly historically accurate and trying to bring those characters to the screen with as much verisimilitude uh, as it possibly can. And so you see the nastiness of these people as well as some admirable, admirable traits too. Don't get me wrong, but seeing those two films back to back made me at, you know, as a, as a younger man, just starting to see a lot of these kind of films know that what I'm seeing isn't always reality in a lot of different ways. And this movie, while a a lot more sanitized than either of those two films, not just for the violence, but simple relationships and the, the interpersonal dynamics of, of people doing different things and, and requiring certain things of other people and wanting certain things to happen. You know, the, the, these, these, these earlier films from the fifties, there might be some complexity in character motivation or plot mechanics, but not often. And so these movies, when they work in some reality, something that you can, you know, seriously look up and verify, that's, that's something I'm not expecting, but I'm very thrilled by. If I see a movie these days made in the past 20, 30 years, that's, that purports to be the story of an actual person who lived and died, that we have historical records of. And it's just, you know, suddenly you have Wyatt Earp, you know, taking off in a spacecraft that I'm sorry, I'm just not, I'm not interested (laughs) unless you have something, something really strange up your sleeve. And that's what, that's the story you set out to tell. Uh, Wyatt Earp goes to space. That's in the title. Maybe. Well, and I'm, you know, I'm not really interested. I don't. I, I would much rather have this, you know, something else. Tell to, a fictional to, story. Don't involve Wyatt Earp in this. You're just screwing things up. So to be fair, you put a movie in front of me called Wyatt Earp <laughs> Outer Space, and I'm all in. <laughs> ah, but what if you sat down to watch a movie called Wyatt Earp, and suddenly there are spacecraft? Yeah. No. See, we need a little bit more than that. <laughs> but now I want to see Wyatt Earp story told in outer space. Uh, <laughs> Wyatt Earp, Space Sheriff, Moon Sheriff. There we go. 
you know, let's contact Joss Whedon. What the hell? <laughs> oh, so, man. Masterson of Kansas, the, the story that it's that, that it's really about is, intriguingly enough, we have the the thing that you're thinking is going to drive the entire movie, but it, it really is kind of a parallel story that that intersects with the main storyline is the the uh, let's just say coming gunfight between Masterson and Holiday. But the real story going on is this whole thing about a land exchange. Essentially, there's a there's a large amount of land that has by treaty been uh, ceded to uh, the uh, Native American tribe nearby. I can't remember which tribe it is now that I don't remember them saying darn it. Now I can't remember anyway. Um, but what the uh, landed people, the what the people who would rat would, would like to keep that land or hold on to that land or get their hands on that land for themselves are trying to do is to foment a, a, a war between uh, the U S army and the Indians so that 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 treaty will be null and void. And what that rests on is accusing a man who is a a peacemaker between the Indians and the United States of murder and having him hung. Because essentially, Yellowhawk, the leader of this Indian tribe, has basically said that if you hang this man for something that he obviously did not do, then we will, you know, we will wage war. And the the landed people, the rich folk, who want to grab this land, that's what they want. They want a war so that the Indians won't have any rights to this land and they can claim it for themselves. I hate to say this, but it's an incredibly modern story. <laughs> no, I, I agree with you. And I, I, I am right there with you. I really dig the way this film is constructed because there, there are multiple storylines going on. You've got the, the conflict between the white man and the Indians. You've got uh, the conflict between you know, the, the landowner and the, the, somebody's framing them for murder and then all the sneaky stuff they do behind the scenes and the, the lies that are being told to various people at various times. I really enjoyed this story and it does feel like a modern film. It really does. I'm right there with you. And I know we're not talking about the cast yet, but you mentioned Yellowhawk. Got to mention who he is. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll say this. He's played by uh, Jay Silver, Jay Silver, yep. which everyone will know because, of course, he played Tonto for uh, in the Lone Ranger television series and a couple of feature films for years. So everyone's going to yep. know his name and they're going to know him as, uh, you know, as Tonto. And as soon as I saw his name in the credits, I thought, wow, okay, cool. But he's got a really small role in this picture. Yeah. Unfortunately, he doesn't have a lot to do. But it's cool to have him there. Yeah. He's, he's perfectly great. But at the same time, it's, it's, it's uh, I guess, in 1954, his, his, his star did not shine as brightly as it, you know, as it did a couple of decades later where that would have been a drawing point, really. Yeah, exactly. Well, yeah, briefly, let's go ahead and uh, while we're on the subject, let's just talk about some other members of the cast. Um, okay. George Montgomery plays Bat Masterson. And uh, boy, I knew this guy as well from a few other films. I knew him from a lot of bit roles, a lot of small roles. Um, okay. Uh, he did a, a lot of Westerns, of course. And uh, I knew him from Last of the Bad Men from a few years after this. Uh, we're going to see him in another William Castle Western when we cover Battle of Rogue River. I'm looking forward to that one. <laughs> now, not to get too far ahead, but I'm really looking forward to that one. But the uh, 
the thing about him is he had he had he had the face and the the voice to play these kind of roles. He played a Western role very well. I mean, uh, shockingly enough, in a film that I thought I had seen, but then I looked it up and I haven't. He played Philip Marlowe in a movie too. Nice. Yeah, it's called The Brasher Doubloon. And I have somehow managed to miss this particular Philip Marlowe, Philip Marlowe film. So one day I'm going to have to check it out. But uh, he, he's very good in this. I won't say he's a standout because, sadly, we'll, we'll get to the actor who outshines everyone else in this film in just a moment. But he's a rock-solid center for this story. And he does some really good acting in this, especially – um, in this scene, we've already mentioned the scene where he explains that gunfight with uh, the jealous military officer. Yeah, that was you know that's a that's a well acted scene. Uh, I think both of us were hoping that that over the course of these eight films we might see some kind of uh, obvious progression or some moments where we see some movement forward in the directing skills or at least the uh, choices made as a director by William Castle. And I think, unfortunately, I don't think we're going to see a lot of very obvious and overt stuff of that type. But I do think that he's very he's developed already by this time. He's developed into a smart director who knows when to let a scene of that type play out in a in in a uh, as 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 long a take as he can because his actors are doing it well enough that keeping the camera back a little bit and keeping them both in the shot and letting them both react in real time to the dialogue really plays off well there because Montgomery is bringing it in that scene and the other actor really just ha- kind of has to react she has a few lines of dialogue but basically she's there to react to the story she's being told. And I think that's some smart direction. And it's one of the instances, it's one of the instances in this film where there are other ways to shoot that sequence. And in a lot of ways, the choice made by castle is the simplest, but it's also, I think the most effective because if you started cutting into that, it's, it's almost a soliloquy. It's almost a, a very long solo piece that an actor could read on the stage and it works effectively because it's done the way Castle sets up the shot, which is to stay back, keep both actors uh, in view, and let it play out. It's well done. And uh, like I say, I don't think we're going to spot a lot of moments. I mean, come on, man. He made six movies in one year. <laughs> how, much of a, how much of a personalized imprint can you make <laughs> on product that you're pumping out at that speed? I mean, I don't know. Right. <laughs> I don't know how many weeks that he had to make each of these, but it wasn't long. And so I think that pretty much it was, it's, it's the difference between a walk and a run. And I think that he was in, in 1953 and 1954. I think he was at a run. Yeah. Um, I don't, I'd like to know more about how much, how, what he did with these productions. I mean, we can, as genre fans, obviously we know what castle did with, or we can find out what castle did with the tingler and, you know, all these other movies that he did because, there are books written about them. Literally, there are books written about these things. Did Castle talk a lot about these other films? I don't know. I need to go and read his autobiography and see. But I'd like to know more about how long he... I, I can tell you this. Sadly, he did not. Uh, yeah, see, that's a shame. And he he occasionally mentions one, but it's in it's very quick and in passing. And it generally, he's mentioning some of these movies just because of 
uh, particular actors that, um, you know, had, you know, that he became longtime friends with or things of this nature. And so there's not a lot of information about his time making these movies. And there's a certain, there's a certain curiosity on my part about why that may be. In other words, I think that he may, his, it may all have blended together for him, man. Yeah. I wouldn't be surprised. surprised. If he wasn't making, you know, diary entries or journal notes or anything like that during the mid fifties, this is not a man who ever thought he was going to need to remember this stuff. So this was a question of, I mean, like for instance, I can't, I couldn't tell you what I was doing at work two weeks ago on a Wednesday. I have no idea. Yeah, that's true. I could, I could start to figure it out, but it'd take a while. And you know, he's writing that book years after the fact, and he knows what people are most interested in. They're most interested in the horror movies he made once he became a, a producer himself. Once he went, he, once he struck out and started making the pictures that he's famous for, that's what people want to read about. So, one, you know, there, there's several several things. One, people are not, you know, they're not going to be that interested in that. And two, that was a long time ago, and it's all a damn blur, probably. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> true. Which is a shame. I mean, I'd love to have more information on some of this stuff, but there's very little out there. I One of the things that I cherish is that uh, luckily people like Tom Weaver and Tom Weaver in particular has gone out of his way over the decades to interview a, a lot of the people who worked in a lot of genre pictures and therefore also worked in a lot of these kind of pictures as well over the years. And of course, he's published several volumes. I mean, I'm, I don't know how many exactly, seven or eight volumes of these interviews that he's conducted. And yeah, quite a few, quite a few. And it's great because, like I say, he's interviewing these people mainly because they were in monster movies or science fiction movies or, you know, whatever thing that, of course, automatically rings our bell, Derek. Right. <laughs> but these folks were working actors, so they worked in a lot of this other stuff, too. And so sometimes those interviews will lead you, luckily, to some really interesting revelations about some of these things or just some piece, you know, some interesting stories or the, you know, the reasons that certain things came about as opposed to other things. But, um, man, what, you know, what I would not give for, you know, more of these filmmakers like William Castle to have been, uh, obsessive journalers. You know? <laughs> <laughs> oh, that would have been amazing. Keeping volumes where they're, you know, where, where their children after, you know, years after the fact are able to pull these volumes down and go, wow, we can edit these and, and publish them. Yeah, that would would have been fantastic. Uh, just to just to get more insight into how these were put together, what was going on, how how long they shot them, you know, that sort of thing. Yeah. yeah. Oh well. <sighs> no, yeah. no luck though. Well, uh, let's talk about. Um, well, I have I have one more note about George the, uh, Montgomery. Uh, I did not know this, sorry. but apparently he was one of the American actors who went over to Italy to make a spaghetti western at some point. Yeah, he was he, in the Django film, wasn't he? Yeah, Django, the Honorable Killer. <laughs> I don't Which, know that I've seen that. I, I've not seen it either, but now I want to. <laughs> well, I do remember that uh, he also, as if this is a, a bizarre recurring theme, he also popped up in an episode of The Six Million Dollar Man. Which oh, really? Which is not a series <laughs> I'm obsessed with. So shut up. No, that's awesome. Shut up, Derek. Shut up. Why? I'm not obsessed with The Six Million Dollar Man. Shut okay. up. Okay, I'm, I'm not. You know, me. stop, dude. It's, it's your podcast, man. <laughs> 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 oh 
man. No, uh, I, I, I'm sorry, but every every time some some older actor pops up, I start looking at their resume and I see, oh wow, they were on an episode of the Six Million Dollar Man. I look at their picture and I swear to you, that show imprinted itself so firmly in my brain <laughs> that I might actually have a firm memory of them. <laughs> nice. I might actually, I might actually have an image that pops into my head and I go, oh yeah, he was the guy who, uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's sad. <laughs> is there a $6 million man podcast out there somewhere? You know, I'm sure there is. I have not gone searching for it because uh, essentially because I, I, I've got all five seasons of the show on DVD and I've very slowly been working my way through a complete rewatch of the series. Okay. And um, I'm in the latter stages of the second season and I'm going very slowly and one of the reasons why I go slowly is that I learned very fast in the second season that if I try to watch too many of these things in a row, I'm going to get really frustrated because I remember a lot of these episodes as soon as I start seeing them, or at least I remember a, you know, a little bit. I, I remember enough to go, oh, yeah, I've seen this one. Uh, the thing is, I've seen them all. <laughs> and it's been a long time, but if you see too many of them back to back, at least I start to get a little bit of a little bit of frustration going, which because some episodes are not just better than others. They, they give me more of what I want because some episodes will be much more um, espionage and therefore a little blander than average. And then you'll have episodes that lean more into the science fiction elements. Sure. It's the science fiction elements that really stick out in my memory. The espionage episodes are, are, are okay. I mean, you know, they're typical 1970s action adventure television. It's no big deal. But <laughs> if I get two or three of those in a row, I start to want to skip ahead. <laughs> Find me the one where the robots are or something, yeah, anything at all. <laughs> <laughs> where are the robots? Where's Bigfoot? You know, things like that. And, um, I'm trying to, uh, I'm trying to make myself go through and see every episode. And, uh, I don't want a podcast <laughs> <laughs> guiding me through these things because then it will accelerate in a certain direction. And I know what will happen is I'll start skipping episodes and going, no, no let's get to the good ones. Where's Bigfoot? Uh, <laughs> or the aliens. <laughs> when does, when does Bigfoot come back? Let me skip to that. You know, I got to be careful with it. Okay. <laughs> but, I'm, but I'm, but I'm not obsessed. Okay. All right. I understand. <laughs> You're not, I totally get it. I totally get it. Yeah. Don't, totally not a big fan at all. Gotcha. Yeah. 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 And, and yes, probably one day I will, I will enlist someone to at least do a, a an overview podcast about the six million dollar man, but I'm going to put that off as long as possible because I I want to get as close to the end of the fifth season as I can before I bring down the hammer and and give my adult comprehensive view of the entire series. <laughs> oh man, am I off track now? So back to this film. Yeah, <laughs> but we digress, uh, or at least I do. Sorry. Yeah. Well, you know. <laughs> Cute little filly, Doc. You thinking of slapping a brand on her? You have an unfortunate choice of words, Mr. Fry. Might be better you didn't speak of the lady at all. I'm sorry, Doc. I apologize. I didn't understand. No, you wouldn't. Who could understand the scent of lilac in the stench of Dodge City? Well, if you'll forget what I said, Doc, I, I'd like to talk over a little business proposition with you. My business is gambling. Well, sir, what I have to offer is something of a gamble. You'll have to kill Bat Masterson one of these days. I'm willing to bet I can pick the day. 
These are my business hours, Mr. Fry. See me in my office. So, yeah, I know. That's really strange. Did, did George Montgomery, he made at least one Italian Western. Did he make? He only made the one, though, right? That's all I'm seeing. That's really weird. You'd expect there to be, well, you'd expect you'd go over there and make more than one. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but if they're willing to pay for, you know, somebody to take a working vacation in Italy, I'm sure, you know, even if it's just for one movie, he'll take it. Yeah, I guess so. Well, there's also uh, Nancy Gates, who plays uh, the female lead, who is the uh, daughter of the uh, the peacemaker character who's being framed, who's been framed for a murder he did not commit in the plot of the story. And uh, Nancy Griffiths, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, Nancy Gates. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm, I'm combining names now. <laughs> I knew her from a few things, and I'm sure you did as well. Nancy Gates. Yeah, I really liked her in this movie, and she world without end. Yep, I'm gonna say world without end. Uh, a lot of television and such, but you know, as a genre guy, world without end, which is a great film. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's uh, it's how, how to how to put this succinctly. She's an attractive lady, and she's talented. And I found myself a bit frustrated when I started looking at her resume. That most of her work in the fifties was in television that is just really difficult to see. Um, things like the star in the story and adventures of the Falcon and, uh, screen directors playhouse, Jane Wyman presents, uh, things like that, where you're going, you know, the, the red skeleton hours, so like she did all of this. I mean, just lots and lots of work. And a lot of it is just going to be really difficult for us to see. It's unfortunate. And I'm, <laughs> going to be starting a YouTube project that's going to involve me going through some old television or I'd love to find, but yeah, I don't even know if it's even available anymore, if the tapes exist or anything. So, so yeah, I, I, I feel the frustration, but she's quite good in this. And I found myself, uh, really, I, I, I found myself wishing, like I say, that I just had been able to see her in more things. I, I liked her, I liked, uh, her, Screen charisma, I think, is probably the best way to put it. She seems to have something there. Yeah. Or, sadly enough, I should say she had something there. Uh, well, yeah. We are we are talking about the 1950s. This is a long True. time ago. So. Uh, but no, it's... She did so much television, though, man. All the way through the 60s. I mean, Wagon Train, The Virginian, Perry Mason, Bonanza, even The Mod Squad. Yeah. It's great. <laughs> But yeah, it's great. And she did so much. And again, it's one of these working actresses, uh, actors, uh, did a lot of television, did a lot of, of work. So, and hey, she did an episode of Men Into Space. So <laughs> <laughs> that makes me happy. Well, what she's probably <laughs> going to be most well remembered for amongst normal film fans, uh, that would let us out, by the way, Derek, is she was in the Frank Sinatra film Suddenly uh, with, uh, oh. yeah, with, with Sinatra and Sterling Hayden and and uh, she's got a pretty beefy role in that. So that's probably what, uh, you know, what most people would know her from who are not uh, genre addicts. But, uh, yeah, like I say, I think she had something. I just wish uh, it was easier to see her in more things. But now let's talk about reoccurring character actor James Griffith, who plays Doc Holliday in this film. Yeah, I really liked I liked him better in this than the other film we just watched. Uh, or he's, just talk about him. he's great. He's so good in this film. Yeah. 
this is I, well. First of all, as soon as they introduced Doc Holliday, I didn't really think he was going to be. I didn't. Play, I didn't think the character was going to play that much of a role in the story. And the fact that he does, and the way that they arrange for him to be a big part of the story, is great. Yes, he's. Well, first of all, James Griffith. I'm not sure. Like, like I say, it would take someone going through his entire filmography to make this kind of decision. But this is one of the most amazing performances he probably ever gave. I've not seen all of his work. Oh, wow. And, and I may be well, I may be well wrong because it may be other performances out there where he got this meaty a role and was able to dig his teeth into it as well as he's able to in this, but he gets a lot of screen time. He's got a lot of great scenes. He's got a lot of good dialogue there are so many shades. You watch this character go through some changes in the story. Mm-hmm. He's got a lot going on here. And Griffith is up to the task. Oh. He is great here. No doubt. Uh, and, and he gives a sense of uh, sympathy through the entire thing. Because yeah. it, it, it's, it's Doc Holliday. We know how his life's going to end. And he kind of knows how his life's going to end. And he's kind of resigned himself to it. But. He's still kind of, oh, wow, just the journey he's on in this film. Uh, I love it. I love him in this. He's 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 great in this movie. It really mm-hmm. surprised me how much I loved. I mean, the thing's called Masterson of Kansas, and there's some great Bat Masterson stuff in here. We've talked about a couple of those scenes, but my God, it could have been called, you know, Masterson and, and Holiday, and that would have been a more... <laughs> more uh, more accurate portrayal of the way this film plays out. These guys, I mean, both of them are good, but Griffith as Holiday just because of the that character is given so much more to chew on and he's so good in this role. I I could not believe it. There were so many scenes where well, first of all, I love James Griffith's voice. Oh yeah. And we talked about this last time with John Hodiak. There's a lot to be if you cast somebody with a voice that good some of your job is done (laughs) really i mean because these guys they're all they're they're good actors and they understand you know screen acting but they also have a voice that is i mean there's 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 command in that voice there's something that you can't deny about the power of it and griffith has that 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 as well he's so good at delivering that delivering this dialogue and credit where credit's due. I'm going to talk about the script writer here in a second. There's damn good dialogue in this movie. Oh yeah. And I was not expecting, I, I, this is me being completely honest. I'm not expecting any of these eight films that we cover on, in, in in this William Castle set. I really am not figuring on any of them having great scripts. Right. I'm, I'm just thinking they're going to be serviceable at best. We're, we're watching these to, to, to see the growth and the, the learning curve of William Castle. So when we get to this one and I'm actually impressed by the dialogue and like we were just talking about how how many things are going on in this story. Mm-hmm. This is well done. The script writer. Oh, this Hayes. Um, yeah. We, we know this guy. Well, first of all, he's written a lot of different things and not just kitten with a whip. <laughs> he wrote kitten with a whip. And I want that. I wanted to say that first. Okay. I, 
um, okay then. I'm not familiar with that film. Um, <laughs> familiar with getting the whip, Derek? But, what but now, have you been living under. And now I want to see it. <laughs> First of all, Douglas Hayes, the screenwriter, wrote uh-huh. and directed Kitten with a Whip. It's an Anne Margaret film. Oh, I'm looking it up right now. I'll be bookmarking this for later. <laughs> I'm telling you right now, you want to see Kitten with a Whip. Okay. All right. Sounds good. I'm well, in. Not only that, he wrote the screenplay for Ice Station Zebra. Yeah. He wrote some Night Gallery episodes. Thriller. He did some Thriller episodes. Yes, he did. Yeah. Three. As a matter of fact, I would tell you right now, three of the best. Now, two of them are adaptations, so you know he's, he's adapting other work. But The Hungry Glass, which he adapted, and The Purple Room, which he wrote. Oh. Yeah? Yeah. Oh, so good. Those are excellent episodes. But this guy knew what he was doing. I mean, he... Yeah, yeah, yeah. He, he wrote all kinds of different stuff. But you look at the episodes of Maverick that he wrote, and they're excellent. You look at the stuff. I mean, this guy knew how knew what he was doing, and the fact that he wedged himself into Hollywood hard enough to actually get be able to get behind the camera and direct as well. You know, <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, I'm sure writing a script called Kitten with a Whip. You know, got 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 his got his toe in the door. But then, of course, he went on and, and, and did a lot of directing for television. He didn't just write for television. He directed as well. So Douglas Hayes is the guy that we can credit I mean, w- with all of this excellent dialogue that luckily James Griffith is masterfully delivering in this film. Sure. Uh, he's, he's the standout for me. Uh, of the movies that we've talked about so far, this is probably my favorite. It's the one I'm going to go back to and watch again on purpose uh, because I really like the dialogue and the story and the performances. Uh, just to talk a little bit more about James Griffith, uh, you know, he was a Western actor, but he did so much more. I mean, he played Pat Garrett in something and did a lot of Western TV, but he did so much more. Did a couple of episodes of the Batman series with Adam West. And, you know, as a genre guy, he was in The Amazing Transparent Man and The Vampire, uh, which are two movies that I feel like don't get enough attention because they're great. Uh, yeah, exactly. The Vampire as well. He's oh, easy. Yeah. The Vampire The Amazing Transparent Man was Edgar Ulmer. I mean, it's, it's a phenomenal film that people don't talk enough about. Yeah, well, I don't think it's Edgar Ulmer's best film by any stretch. No, no not at all. I mean, nothing can be the black, you know, the black Cat's that, but yeah. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. There's, yeah. there's definitely that. There's that. <laughs> Just just to say this, I don't want to ruin anything about this film because of the four we've covered so far, Masterson of Kansas is the one that I would send people to first. Oh, this yeah. Is, go see it if you can. And uh, there's just a lot to recommend. It's well worth your time. And um, I would – oh, I do want to – I do want to point out one other actor in this who has a small role. Um, but as soon as I saw him on screen, I immediately started losing my mind because I was like, I know this guy, I know this guy, I know this guy, who is this guy? And it's the uh, actor who plays Virgil Earp, uh, Donald Murphy. Okay. As soon as I saw him, I, I was going, I know this guy, who is he? And I know him because I just recently rewatched Frankenstein's daughter. And he plays <laughs> the incredibly villainous mad scientist. Oh, very, excellent. Very sly and shady. <laughs> Yeah, that movie's um, it's a good movie. It's a, and yeah, that that Doctor Frankenstein and that is not a nice man. 
it, I, I swear to you, I love the the slimy bastard that he plays in in Frankenstein's Daughter. He, of course, I've seen him in a lot of other things too. But once you see Frankenstein's Daughter, I hate to say it, but that guy, he's so good in that in that role that it just kind of permanently imprints on you as slimy scumbag. It's just awesome. <laughs> Uh, and the last film he was involved with was something called Swamp Girl, which I don't know anything about, 1971. Uh, and I, I go to look at it in the description, you know, little blonde girl is in a swamp, wants to protect all the creatures of the swamp. It's a drama. Okay, whatever. It's put out by Something Weird Video. So, you know, it's probably got something else going on in there. <laughs> it probably does. I yeah. think more interesting, uh, more interesting near the end of his, uh, near the end of his career there in the late sixties is the very intriguing film, Lord love a duck, which is, uh, <laughs> it's, it's a very interesting, film. it's a, it's a, it's a comedy. It's a, well, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a satire really stars Roddy McDowell and Tuesday weld. Okay. Uh, highly recommended. Um, very interesting film. Um, and, uh, he, he does have a role in it. It's not a, it's not a, it's not a huge role, but you, you'll, you'll remember him in it. Let's put it that way. Okay. Okay. Um, so yeah, if you want to see, if you want to see him near the, near the end of his career, watch Lord love a duck. I'm not really sure about that. Swamp. (laughs) Swamp (laughs) girl. I haven't seen swamp girl. I don't know. Well, uh, since we don't want to ruin this movie for people, Derek, yeah, um, I really don't. So what's your overall opinion of Masterson of Kansas? I I love this one. Of the four we've watched, like I said, it's my favorite. It's right up there at the top. It's got as a monster kid, it's got pedigree for me because of the genre connections that we have here. But we also have really good actors and actresses overall. Uh, David Bruce is another actor in here who was in The Mad Ghoul. Um, yeah. You yeah. Know, so you, you've got all these solid genre connections for monster kids. And if you're a fan of Westerns, you've got three of the big legends that are talked about in these classic Western films that are talked about in these classic Western films that are in here. Um, the three of them together... I I love when they're all talking together, when they're all on screen together. Uh, Wyatt Earp, Bat Masterson, and Doc Holliday. The conversations they're having. It's a very natural style of dialogue, which feels more modern than B-movie 50s. Uh, yeah, this, yeah, you're right. You're the, right. The, the story is great. Um, the, the way it's told is great. The multiple storylines are fantastic. Uh, the, the sneaky, sneaky stuff that Bat Masterson is doing is great. Uh, I'm just a big fan of this one. This is, you're right. This is my favorite of the four we've covered so far. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm just, I'm really impressed with this. You're right. As far as uh, going back to rewatch it, this is one that I would be happy to show to other people. Um, to watch, to watch it again myself so that I could show it to others. In other words, I think that it's, it's that good. And I would love to be able to watch other people discover this film. Uh, there, this entire movie, I have only one problem with anything in it. And that is the scene where Wyatt Earp shows up at the beginning. Mm-hmm. He appears to have materialized in the street in between. <laughs> well, he landed in his spaceship and then <laughs> I'm pretty sure either that or Scotty beamed him down. I'm not there you positive. go. But other than that, which, you know, like I say, I don't care how focused Masterson and um, Doc Holliday were on each other in that street. They would have seen him walk up. I'm sorry. There's there's no other way around it. That's true. The fact that I have to nit pick something that small to find anything negative to say about this picture will tell you how good I think it is. I think it's really good. You know what? I just, <laughs> another genre connection. Um, Greg Martell is in this movie 
and he was the Neanderthal in Dinosaurus, which I just talked about on Monster Kid Radio with comic book creator Tad Galusha. So you're kidding me? No, that's great. <laughs> <laughs> I, I saw the name in the cast list right now. I was like that looks really familiar. Why does that? Oh yeah, we just talked about that guy. <laughs> My goodness. It's a great film, so, but, and you're right. Steer people toward this one. Listeners, if you haven't seen any of these movies, this is the one to start with, I think. I agree. I completely agree. I've enjoyed the other three to a degree, you know, to one degree or another. But this one, wow, this one's actually very good. Um, I mean, like, good enough to entice people to well, – let's put it this way. As curious as I would be to see Jesse James versus the Daltons in a 3D presentation on the big screen mm-hmm. – Masterson of Kansas is the one that I would like to see a Blu-ray of with some uh, pertinent extras. Sure. I think that there's a lot that somebody could dig into here uh, to give us some background on this film. And I would love – basically, I would just love to see some more background on this Yeah. Film. I want to know more about it too. Uh, and maybe it's because I don't travel in a lot of the old Western – circles online, Facebook groups, message boards or whatever. Maybe there is material out there or information out there. And if anybody's got any information, if anybody knows about these movies as Rod and I go through them, <laughs> drop me a line, look me up on Facebook and let me know. Cause I want to know more about them. Yeah. Come, come to think of it. Remember it's Derek cook. Hey, give them, give them your contact information, Derek. <laughs> I wasn't trying to set up a segue, but monster kid radio at gmail.com is the best way to get a hold of me. So what monsterkidradio at gmail.com. Yep. And uh, that, of course, leads us to the end of the show because, uh, hey, Derek, I understand your show's still going great guns over there. <laughs> well, it's, it's going okay, you know. It's, well, it's <laughs> <laughs> are, you, are you leaving the podcasting life behind <laughs> to become a highfalutin writer? I want to do both. <laughs> I want it all, huh? I want it all, man. I don't, who needs sleep? No, um, we are, as of today... I am preparing episode 415 of Monster Kid Radio for next week's uh, release. Uh, so we've been going for a while. I've uh, been going for, is it four years now? I lose track. <laughs> the fact that you, you're in the 400s, yeah, it, that's what swamps my brain every time I try to think about it. Well, I haven't run out of things to talk about. That's the thing. You know, I was thinking about it the other day, and there are still so many movies from the Universal canon that I haven't tackled yet, which blows my mind would have thought that i would have knocked all those out right away but no i still have a handful of frankenstein movies and uh, i don't know if i ever really did like like werewolf of london i've never talked about uh some of the other invisible man movies i haven't talked about so yeah there's a handful of universal things that i still haven't covered there uh but we're all over the map you know universal hammer roger corman william castle uh kaiju films love me a good kaiju film been getting into those lately more and more so yeah um it's it's just been a ball and you said this is coming out in april oh yeah so that means next month is our yearly event lucha de mayo i say it wrong every time lucha de mayo (laughs) (laughs) i even told myself it's mayo it's mayo it's mayo nope mayo no lucha de mayo is our look at the luchador monster movies typically of the 50s 60s and 70s uh so we've got blue demon el santo mil mascaras and them fighting monsters and doing genre stuff. And we do that every May. So if you are interested in those kinds of movies or just want to hear some fans of those movies gush about them for about an hour, tune in. Sounds great to me. Yeah, I, I have a blast with it. And we, you know, we rotate the number of people that we have on the show. We don't always have the same guest host. Rod's been on the show a few times. Uh, you know, I just had a 
Stephen D. Sullivan on the show. I've had filmmakers, Joshua Kennedy, Christopher Mim on the show. Uh, just whoever is interested in these movies, if you're a big fan, I want to hear about it. I'll have you on. It's a great show, and it's one that uh, I've, I'm, I think I'm like two episodes behind currently. And it's one of those things where I love, I love, to, I love tuning in for, um, well, not, not just for the discussion of the films, but honestly, just because uh, the surf, the surf guitar music. It's like I can never, I can yes. never get enough of that. And I know that you, you, if 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 I'm obsessed with a few different things, I know that you're definitely uh, obsessed with surf music. So, oh, I, I love it. There's so much great stuff happening today. And, and it's all over the world. And that's, that's the best part is that there are bands popping up in Spain and New Zealand in you know, Uruguay and Brazil, all these places. Japan's got a number of great surf bands. And yeah, I love it. Uh, you know, I'm getting some music sent to me now ahead of the release to kind of preview on the show. And it's good stuff, man. It's good stuff. Well, Derek, I cannot thank you enough for coming on to my show and talking with me about these two films. Of course, next time out, we'll talk about another two William Castle-directed westerns from the 1950s. Oh, yeah. And one of them has a real strong genre connection for me. Oh, cool. Yeah, I guess. Really, uh, we cannot wait. <laughs> what are we doing? Battle of Rogue River next? And That's the one. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, what is the, is Law versus Billy the Kid in that set? Uh, let's see. Uh, Battle of Rogue River and the gun that won the West looks like might be the next one on there. Oh, that's in 1955. Oh my Lord. We're leaving 1954. Yeah. How can it be? I know, right? How did we manage that? Technically Battle of Rogue River came out between Masterson of Kansas and Jesse James versus the Daltons, but they were all in 1954. So it's, it, as soon as, as soon as we got to 1954 and it was suddenly six movies stacked there. I, I, I don't know why I jumped to Masterson of Kansas uh, probably the reason is that that's how they're that's how they're grouped on this two D two DVD set of these films. Yes, yeah, so that's I how they're assume, presented. Uh, yes, of course. And it makes it makes it makes it easier to just go <laughs> the way the discs are set up. Fortunately, they're almost in chronological order. But yeah, I'm really excited for the next two. Cool, cool. Well, Derek, once again, thank you very much for coming on the show, and uh, we will talk to you again soon about more of these. Sounds good. And one of these days, we got to get you back on Monster Kid Radio, man. Hey, man, uh, I got to tell you. May Maybe is, when you're done moving. <laughs> May is, is going to be very busy for me. But uh, after that, we can start discussions. Sounds good, man. Sounds great. All right. Talk to you soon, man. Well, this is Rod just summing things up by once again thanking everybody for tuning in and listening to the show this time around. Stay in touch. We've got at least two more of these William Castle Western podcasts that Derek and I will be doing in the near future. Don't know exactly when, but we'll get to them. And uh, also, if you have any comments about the shows, the email address for the podcast is thebloodypit at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you and uh, let us know if uh, you think after we're done with the uh, William Castle Westerns, maybe we should cover something else in the same vein. Who knows? Maybe we'll finally get around to talking about, uh, I don't know, William Castle's other films. Maybe we can find the fat man and review it. Maybe we should just cover all of William Castle's pre self-production career. That'd be fun. That'd be kind of interesting. There's some interesting stuff there. Anyway, I am Rod Barnett. Once again, thank you for tuning in. Thank you for listening. And we will talk to you again soon. Mm-hmm.